This week on the Sport Chokes, uh, uh, Sport Blokes. This week, quelle catastrophe! John Vanderveld and Barry Byrne combined for one of the wildest golfing finishes of all time at Carnoustie, and a reality check for Jana Novotna at Wimbledon. Great work, Stewie. Let's go. So, Shuey, here we are again, another choke special after episode 72. We have no idea when this will be uploaded, depending on how our schedules go. It doesn't matter as much as our weekly show, but for the record, it is 4.13. Yeah, it's the same in my time zone, yes. <laughs> Your time zone. We've, we've synced. <laughs> we have synced. Uh, on Saturday, the 16th of October. And here we are again, another group of great sporting chokes. Oh, some crackers this week. Sure are. So one of the things that we didn't really get to discuss in our first choke special was the whole notion of team choke versus individual choke. We looked at the disappointment of teams like the San Antonio Spurs, the South African cricket team, the Australian women's rowing team, but we didn't actually look at any sort of individuals. So the the results and the legacies of these for the individuals are are so different to the team legacies. Something that I thought was quite interesting while I was getting ready for today's show If you look at things like golf or tennis, which we will discuss today, people naturally have favorite players. So if we're talking about tennis, for me, I'm a massive Roger Federer fan. If you're looking at golf, I'm a massive Tiger Woods fan on the course, not so much what he does off the course. (laughs) But, you know, unless they're Bernard Tomic, we love to barrack for our countrymen. (laughs) Nick Curios? I see. I've I've grown to enjoy. Uh, yeah, I've warmed to him in the last couple but, of years. So yeah, some of his COVID stuff was a bit better than oh, some of his previous. Brilliant, stuff. absolutely yeah. brilliant. But literally anyone could theoretically become good enough to play professional golf or tennis. And the results of failures in those individual sports are not really scrutinised anywhere near as harshly as the failures of a team. And so we often maybe discuss their failures for a few days, a week, whatever it happens to be. But then they kind of get forgotten. Some. So, yes, well, some. And that is very, very true of what we're going to talk of today. So sometimes, especially in the case of one individual we'll talk about in this episode, their choke is so bad that it actually defines their entire career more than their achievements, which is just, it's horrible. It is. It is. And all for being human, right? We all make mistakes. We don't do it intentionally. Why would anyone want to cost themselves or their team a chance of success? Well, exactly. And it goes back to things we talked about. You know how college players in the tournament were getting angry tweets and stuff like death threats and stuff. On rare occasions where there's match fixing or something, okay, sure. But in the most case, people do not want to lose. They don't want to stuff up. They don't want to be remembered. In this era where everything's on YouTube and on social media, they don't want to be, and thank God for that, because it's helped us in our preparation for yeah, these episodes. Well, exactly right. But no one wants to be remembered in infamy. And the funny thing I've found in preparing for these episodes is that in many cases, unfortunately, your greatest loss will be remembered more than your greatest achievement. And in some cases, you might only have one really bad loss and you might have dozens of achievements, but it is unfortunately, it's, and it's a human nature thing, isn't it? It's, we tend to hold on to the stuff that's a bit more scandalous or a bit more, it's a bit more interesting failure sometimes. You're so right that it is human nature. If you go back to the days in the schoolroom, if you happen to get 99% on a test, you'd be looking at it going, what was the 1% I got wrong? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And unfortunately for me, it didn't really happen very often that that was the case, but very, very occasionally. I remember in maths, you'd always answer questions. They were like, how the hell did he know this? And then at the end of the year, you told me you'd looked ahead in the book and that's yeah. how you, so you knew what was coming. Yeah, it was the one subject I actually enjoyed. So. <laughs> but I'm glad you actually brought up the high school experience because most people at one stage or another have played sport in their life and it might have stopped at juniors or at high school, but most people can actually relate to a choke. 
like I remember a friend in high school talking about a netball game where she missed a shot and she still beats herself up because she missed a shot that might have won her under 15 championship or something. And in the grand scheme of things, it's not that big. But in the story of her life, it's something that she reflects on. So most people can refer to a choke. And it's language we use as well. Like, I know I've played board games where I've been miles ahead and gone, ah, fucking choke that one away. Do you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, the settlers of Catan. (laughs) (laughs) Whatever it might be. So, yeah, so this is something that I think is really interesting about this whole experience as well, is that most people at one level or another can relate to choking themselves. Well, it's the parallel between sport and real life, so to speak. I say real life in inverted commas because sport is real life as well, but... It is just, it's such a fascinating topic and it's one that I know you've just mentioned that I've thoroughly enjoyed researching these and I'm looking forward to all of the rest of them. The other thing that struck me doing this, so when we kind of brainstormed what sort of specials we could do in the weeks that we couldn't do our weekly show, the choke one was at the top of the list. It always caused us the most excitement. And as we've mentioned in episode 72, we've teased this for a long, 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 long time. (laughs) Nearly two years. (laughs) Which is good in the sense that we've maintained a really good recording schedule and we've managed to record one nearly every week for two years, which is a decent effort. But what I failed to kind of appreciate in preparing for this was how gut-wrenching some of these stories are. Yep. Like if we'd done a month worth of these episodes back to back to back, I think it would be quite fatiguing. Yeah. Because some of the stories are so sad. Now, there are stories of redemption too. And we talked about that in episode 72 with the San Antonio Spurs. And that's going to come about today a little bit as well. So that is the silver lining of some of these jokes is a lot of people have come out of them okay. And so today we embark on our next group of unfortunate chokers, or if you're a fan of Paul Laurie or Steffi Graf, you can celebrate a magnificently improbable victory. (laughs) As we've said before, they're all in the eye of the beholder. Yeah, absolutely. And you're right. There is a flip side to every good there is a bad and to every bad there is a good. Absolutely. So Stewie, our first choke this week goes all the way back to 1999 at Carnoustie Golf Course in Scotland, affectionately dubbed as Carnoustie which we'll soon find out about why. It's a very good reason why. <laughs> First time it had been held there in 25 years, actually, at that point. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Interesting course. A very interesting course. So Frenchman Jean Vandervelde might have been the only player believing he could actually win the Open when the 1999 event started. He sat 152nd in the world, had never even finished in the top 20 at a major before. Yet amazingly, he led Justin Leonard and Craig Parry by five shots going into the final round. He was the only player in the field who wasn't over par at that mm. stage. Mm. Now, and again, Carnasty. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's so many reasons why. And we'll, we'll sort of talk about this a little bit more because I've actually played a bit of golf in Scotland. And it is just so difficult to play over there. The wind, the grass. The, the drizzle. The, there's so many things. But Vandervelde found himself stepping onto the 72nd tee with a three-shot lead over Leonard and Paul Laurie. All he needed was a double bogey six or better, and he wins the tournament. And this is a hole that he'd actually birdied two of the three times he played it that week. So a couple of interesting things about the names you've already mentioned, Stewie. Craig Perry was his playing partner for that final round. So he was involved in the whole process at the end. And Leonard and Laurie had already finished their round. So they were witnessing this all unfold. Yeah, that's right. And always one of the interesting things when you get to that sort of final stages of a final round in these tournaments is they sort of flash the camera to and fro, looking, yes. at, looking, at, looking <laughs> yes. at the guys in the clubhouse. They might be out on the practice range trying to stay warm. But yeah, this one was one I don't think anyone really expected was going to go past the 72nd no, hole. No, no. 
Now, for Vandervelde, at the time, it looked like a very weird decision and kind of an almost an unexplainable decision to take Driver off the tee. Three would kind of made a little bit more sense. And the spectacular call from the late Peter Ellis of, he's out with the driver. Now, I, I'm not sure this is right. Oh, the Peter Ellis commentary is fantastic, littered throughout this footage. And it's on YouTube. I encourage you to go and watch because that final hole is what, maybe 15 minutes or something? Yeah, give or take. It's definitely worth watching. There's some great calls that we'll mention. And this is the thing. Alice is one of those guys that had been commentating for decades. He knew these courses inside out. He knows the sort of clubs. I mean, you you could have him caddy for you and you'd probably do pretty well. Oh, yeah, if you could play. Well, well, yeah, well. He could caddy for me, but... <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay, you're probably, still, you're probably still doing worse here. No, this is the thing, though. The, the three-wood makes a little bit more sense. It's a very easy hole to drive into the burn. Now, for people who don't know what a burn is, it's a small river that runs through a course. It's this Scottish vernacular sort of thing. Now, Vandervelde managed to get a lucky bounce. He actually finished in the rough on the 17th hole, about 20 feet back from where the burn started. And, of course, Paul Ellis goes, oh, you lucky little rascal. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually probably my favourite call of the oh, entire thing. Rascal. <laughs> Half of my notes are his commentary. But, well, fair enough, though. Fair enough. So, importantly, he still has a shot. You're thinking, okay, he's probably made the wrong decision off the tee, but he still has a shot. That's the important thing. Now, his second shot gives him a choice. He can either lay up with a pitching wedge, put it back onto the fairway, give himself maybe 130, 140 yards in. And it's maybe a more of a conservative approach, but with the stroke lead that he had, a conservative approach wasn't a bad idea. Or he can go the aggressive route and take a two iron and try and hit onto the green, give himself basically, what, five putts for the win. Yeah. Vandervelde decided to go aggressive. He'd yeah. been aggressive all week and it had worked for him. I mean, he was so far ahead of the field for most of the week and, and he had hit his two iron very well all week. That was one of the conversations he had with his caddy. His caddy actually said to him, I think you should lay up. And he sort of said, yeah, appreciate that, but I'm, I'm hitting them really well. Ah, okay. Or whatever the French equivalent of that is. See, that's really interesting. That didn't come up in my research because one of my things was, did the caddy choke? So that's interesting. He's gone against his caddy's no, advice. I actually saw an interview with the caddy. Ah, okay. And he, and he spoke about that. Yeah, so. okay. So he's gone for it and he has absolutely smashed this thing way off to the right way, way, way off to the right. And he managed to get one of the unluckiest bounces you could possibly hope for. Oh, it's nuts. So what it's done, it's actually hit the top of a spectator's fence. And we're talking probably about the equivalent size of maybe one of the lids you get on a bottle of water. (laughs) And It's kind of like a grandstand kind of thing. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. It's like the temporary one they used to put up at the Wacker during the big bash. Oh, yeah. (laughs) It's very similar to that. So he's hit the top of that. Now, it could go literally anywhere. If it bounces on into the grandstand... It's a drop. He gets a free drop. Yep. And you're talking very minimal damage. Yep. If it hits that and bounces straight down, you're hitting out of fairly short grass. Again, probably minimal damage done. You hit onto the green. That's right. Further away from the hole, but the grass isn't as bad. The only thing that really could have screwed him up was exactly what happened. Yeah, So it's bounced off the top of the fence. It's actually hit the top step of the steps that lead into the burn and bounce back into the grass, which was basically knee-high. And by this stage already, lucky little rascal is a distant memory. Yes. It is now we're foreshadowed for things to come. But you can see the look on his face of someone who knows what his third shot is going to be. It's going to be out of rough that is disgusting. And by the way, this isn't just down at your local golf course rough. This is like long reads. Like this is a whole new level of rough. This is Scottish rough. Well, I can add a little bit of an element of personal experience to this. So as I mentioned at the start, 
I've played golf over in Scotland a couple of times. I actually played for my Bucks do. They took me over to one of the courses that attaches on to St. Andrews and I got dressed up as a woman and played, <laughs> played in a dress. So I understand what it's like though, playing on these courses. And I understand if you stray slightly off the fairway, it just wraps around the club. You have absolutely no power. And a shot that you would usually hit 150 yards or 150 meters even, let's just use our, you know, parlance, our sort yeah. of parlance, yeah. might only go 20 or 30. And that is exactly what happened. By the way, around these shots, Parry is playing beautifully. Well, yeah, he's playing not too bad. He put his second shot into the bunker. Oh, you were. Sorry, I'm thinking of the shot he made out of the bunker, which we'll get to. But I, I dare say, but, yeah. yeah, if you've given Vanderbilt the option of being in the bunker or being in nearby yeah. grass, I think he takes he takes the bunker every time. And do you think that the Parry playing with him is adding to the pressure at this point? Well, it will do. And when we get to the bunker yeah, stuff, that's, that's, huge. that's maybe I'm it, Yeah, maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. That, that's but, when it really adds in. Yeah. So his third shot, unfortunately, he's tried to gouge through it. The club gets wrapped around all this grass and the third shot goes straight into Barry's burn. That's the name of it, by the way. Barry burn, yeah. But yeah, it's it's not, I mean, I don't know. You can't really give water a, a gender unless it's French or... Uh, oh, well, if it's gender fluids, Stewie. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> gender fluid. Oh, bloody hell. <laughs> that is a bonus. That is, that is very true. So at this point, it's kind of been crazy enough, but Vanderveld friggin' loses his mind. He walks up, he actually climbs into the burn, takes his shoes and socks off, basically walks down this six-foot-high wall, and, and it is six-foot-high, keep in mind, because the burn actually flows into the ocean, so they have to make sure this thing's high enough that when the tide comes in, it can actually handle all the water. Yes, there's a few interesting things there, but I've got to, I've got to refer to Peter Ellis again at this point. <laughs> a few fantastic quotes here. His golfing brain stopped about 10 minutes ago, I think. And this is so, so sad and so unnecessary. <laughs> and then the other one I like, Shui. Well, we've seen a few miscues and mishaps in our golfing careers, but oh, Jean, Jean, Jean. See, the, the depth of your voice fits his so well. Oh, it, it's the it's, commentary. It's worth watching the video for the commentary alone. It's so else. good. It's so good. So for a few minutes, he kind of gets in there and contemplates hitting it out of there the only smart thing he actually did on this hole was finally picking the ball up and taking a penalty. And I dare say, probably only because when he got to it, most of the ball was actually above water. But by the time he'd sort of piss-farted around getting in there, a little bit of the tide had come in and kind of buried it. So he probably would have, had it stayed where it was, he would have taken the shot. So I listened to a lengthy interview that Jean did on the 19th Hole podcast for Golf WRX Radio with Mike Williams, which is definitely worth a listen. And he gave some really good insights. And he mentions that Craig Perry actually said to him, uh, you'll probably have to wait two hours before you can play that one for the tide to go down. Oh, and, he, wow. and apparently he smiles and there's a reaction there. And some people were like, why is he smiling? Why is he happy? Yeah. So there's a couple of things along the way that he kind of explains those reactions. Because I've actually seen a still of him standing in the middle of this thing with a maniacal smile on his face. Yes, that might be one of the things. Probably that. Because another thing he references is he refers to, and I quote, a human pyramid of photographers that are just all sprawled on top of one another trying to get a a, a shot of the action. So he said that that made him give a few rice smiles as well, which is interesting. Probably made him actually rethink taking the shot as well. Yeah, well, and and I'm going to ask you a question about that. But first, I'm going to go back to the commentary again. So... What are you doing? What on earth are you doing? Oh, Jean, please. Would somebody kindly please go down and stop him? Give him a large brandy and knock him down. <laughs> this is really beyond a joke now. He's gone gaga because this is, this is quite 
I've never seen anything like it before. And to attempt to hit the ball out of there is pure madness, which is true because the angle, there's no way he would have cleared the wall. There's I, no I, way he would have cleared the surely. I actually think he might have. Oh, it's just like, I reckon it would have ricocheted. It's like playing a pot bunker for them. The, the issue that he would have had would have been he would have got no distance on it but it would have potentially saved himself the penalty shot. Well, that's right. Yeah. So, it's, so it's, here's my question. Here's my question. Do you think there's a bit of theatre here? Do you think he really actually was going to attempt to play that shot? Or do you think he was playing it up for the cameras a bit, rolling up the I pants? I 100% believe Pulling off the he socks. He thought he could actually yeah, play okay, that shot. Okay. I think he wanted to stand over it, see how he felt, and yeah, okay, okay. And at this stage, they're cutting to shots of his wife in the crowd. Oh, like, with her head. head in hand. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he picks the ball up, puts it back where it was, plays his penalty shot, manages to clear the burn, which is the important thing. Yes. But finishes up in the bunker. Yes. Now, at that point, he is slightly, slightly behind Perry. Perry. Now, the tradition in golf is that the person who is further away plays their ball first. Yep. But the thinking was that if Vandeveld plays his ball first, he's going to absolutely cover Perry's ball in sand. And it's not going to make for a it's particular... It's not fair. Yeah, yeah it's not going to make yep. for an easy shot. Yeah. So Parry decides, oh, look, I'll play mine first and I'll kind of leave it up to you. So what, oh. what does he do? Oh, he plays a fantastic shot. He fucking holds it. Yeah, yeah, it's brilliant. It's brilliant. And all of a sudden you think to yourself, whoa, that's, that's not good. No, it's adding a lot of pressure. It absolutely does. So Vandervelde steps in and he plays, you know, not a bad bunker shot. But he puts it to six feet, which is long enough. It's one of those nagging little putts, oh, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. more than that. It yeah, is, yeah, yeah. It is, and as someone who can miss one from a foot, a, a six-footer is yeah, very, very long. Yeah. So he's standing over this, and I, I've actually listened to a couple of different takes of this. And one of the ones I heard, which is one of my favorites, is by Mike Tarico. And he said, you root against no one, you root for no one, but you just got to hope that this goes in. Yeah, yeah. By the way, by this stage, a lot of the crowd are starting to run to the playoff hole because they've already anticipated him not... Well, I mean, best case scenario is it's a playoff. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, already by this point. Yeah, you're yeah, right. Like you're if, right. if he makes it, it's a playoff. Yeah, if yeah. he misses it, it's only a two-person That's playoff, right, so. that's right. And also, they showed footage of Laurie watching on and he literally is caught on camera licking his lips yeah. at the prospect of thinking he's playing, thinking he was second and now he could win this thing yeah. in a playoff. yep. Well, I mean, you've seen a guy implode, so where's his head at? So. Yeah, well, yeah. Now, thankfully, Vanderveld did actually manage to make the putt. It is one of the best reactions I've ever seen to a triple bogey in my life. Yeah, the big fist pump. That's, That's right. Yeah, it's not, it's not very often to a triple bogey, yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing is, this is a guy who actually set a record for the fewest putts at the Open for a single tournament Wow. in Vanderveld. And they did say that he was playing basically in the form... You gave his ranking, but he was basically in the form of his life leading into this yep. tournament. So up to this hole, it maybe wasn't super surprising. Unfortunately, the anticlimax is it goes to a three-way playoff. Vanderveld would come last in that four-hole playoff. Yes. And Paul Laurie goes on and wins the tournament. Yes. Now, I've watched a couple of interviews with Vanderveld. His thought process does actually make sense. So the wind was howling that day. It was like 25, 30 k's an hour. And so, I'm not sure that the footage really shows how bad it was. It doesn't. Yeah. It really yeah. doesn't. So his thought process was, well, I can miss the fairway with an iron. Why not go long? And at yep. least I'm closer to where the green is. There's some logic there. There is. And then his second shot would also be one of those ones where he could sort of go, right, I'm going to be close to the front of the green instead of having to hit an approach shot from 150 yards out with the wind. Mm. He obviously regrets the third shot out of the thick grass, not going out sideways or trying to. But again, there's no guarantee that he would have hit the fairway or even managed to keep it on the fairway if he got out. So 
you can kind of see where where the whole thing comes from and the, the mindset. Yeah, the thinking behind it, yeah. Oh, jeez, it's tough. It's just so lucky he makes that putt because the commentator, after Parry's shot, he's like, please give him one good putt, please. Yes, <laughs> yes. And this is, oh, it's so crazy that we go from at the beginning after the lucky little rascal where the commentators say, some golfing god is with this young man at this moment. That golfing god left pretty damn quick. He did. Yeah. He did. So, yeah, choked it away. So, obviously, it's a, it's a pretty nasty choke. And there's a lot of legacy to talk about on the end of this. Yeah, he's a fascinating guy, isn't he? That interview I heard with Mike Williams is, is fantastic. And, and it, the, the way he sums it up, I really liked his back announcement. So he said that Jean was now hitting birdies all the time in the game of life. So he maybe wasn't hitting birdies in that little hole there, but uh, he's doing a ride in the game of life, which is nice. And, and we talked about these redemptive. He's very introspective, isn't he? He, he is. I kind of want to take it back a step, though, because there are quite a few things that happened after that. that yeah, that sure. Yeah, absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yep. So firstly, if we look at his career, Vanderbilt never finished better than a tie for 19th at a major championship again. Which is the sad part. It is. He managed seven professional wins in his career, so he did do okay. And he also made the 1999 Ryder Cup team, being the first Frenchman to ever represent Europe at the event. Unfortunately, his only match was against Davis Love III, and he was absolutely trounced six and five in that. Now, wow. for, for those who don't really understand what that means, he was six holes up with five to play. And that in the sort of the heads up version of golf is an absolute smashing. Yeah, yeah. And to make it worse, it actually started an avalanche of a choke of sorts for Europe. They actually led 10-6 going into the last day, and the Americans won eight and halved one of the 12 matches, and they actually ended up, the Americans, winning the Ryder Cup by one point. And we've talked recently in a, well, I don't know when we'll upload this one, but in episode, what, 70 or 71, we talked about Europe's success in the Ryder Cup. Yeah. And then on top of that, in the early 2000s, he suffered a pretty serious knee injury from a skiing accident and ultimately lost his tour card. Well, here's the thing. So in that interview with Mike Williams, he said that he didn't walk for nearly two years. Hmm. Didn't walk. Hmm. So the fact he even got back on a course professionally is amazing. And he did. He came back in 2005 at the Open de France. He would actually lose that tournament in a playoff to fellow Frenchman Jean-Francois Ramsey. Yeah, bogeying the last hole. That's the amazing thing about it. He actually led by one yeah. going into the 72nd hole, found the water, yeah. and would register a bogey, allowing for the playoff. To make it worse, he actually found the water again during the playoff. They played the 18th hole again. Oh, painful. And, and made a triple bogey seven. Yeah. Ramsey made a six. Yeah. So again, a double bogey would have been enough to keep going. But unfortunately, uh, yeah, a triple... Oh, hurts. But as you say, like the level of introspection and, and the reflection is amazing from him. He, he realizes he's one of the lucky guys. He gets to, quote, walk inside the ropes. Well, this is really it. So in that interview with Mike Williams, he said, if that's the toughest thing I ever have to swallow in my life, then I think I'm a pretty lucky man. And he actually cited the fact that when he woke up that morning, he woke for the news of JFK Jr.'s plane disappearing. Yes. So already there's a bit of perspective in the morning that this isn't life and death stuff, you know? And he puts it so well himself. It's a game. It's not life and death. You know, even though sometimes it kind of feels like it it's does. more than that. It does, yeah. But those simple words do kind of give you an understanding for just how good this guy is at being able to put stuff into perspective. But I'll tell you what, the cruelest part about all of this is as follows. Vanderveld actually heard a commentator say he could have played the entire hole with a putter and gotten under seven. <laughs> and this is what I love about him. He really strikes me as a really good sport. He's got a good sense of humor. He just seems like a lovely guy. So he actually, five months later, went back to Carnoustie to film a commercial where he indeed played the entire hole with just his putter. Yeah. 
and in drastically worse conditions, it has to be mentioned, because this is in winter, playing in December as opposed to playing in sort of yeah, fringe, right. fringe. I mean, it's snow and sleet almost. Wasn't well, it? yeah, there was a lot of <laughs> a lot of ice there early in the morning. I mean, when he got to the course, it was negative something degrees with ridiculous amounts of of ice everywhere. Right. Now, on his third attempt, he actually managed to make a six. Yeah. Yeah. Which is ridiculous because he still had to chip over the burn, which, you know, for him is using the backside of the putter. So he actually had to chip with his left hand. Bloody hell. And he managed to do it so well wow. and, and walk off with that six yeah. with both of his kids standing right around the hole, basically right. to add right. to the pressure. Yeah. To this day, the name Jay Vanderveld should be etched into the cup, but instead it's etched onto the spot on the top of the steps leading into the burn where his ball bounced and took away the dream of any golfer to become a major champion. Not only that, so the Carnoustie Hotel is located on the grounds of the course and it has suites named after former winners. The only non-winner is named after Jean overlooking the 18th hole. Does it have pool access? <laughs> oh, I couldn't not say it. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, he's got a good sense of humour about it, so we can. That is cool, though, that it looks over the 18th. So it was really interesting because one of the questions I was going to ask you was about the caddy choking. So it's interesting that you dug up for that stuff. So I've got a quote here again from the podcast I mentioned earlier. There's no what if. You make decisions, things happen, and you try not to lose your way eventually. You try to find what motivates you to get up the next day. I have no right to complain. It's given me much more than I've given back, I feel. So he's actually now the GM of the French Open, which he seems to really love. He seemed to really enjoy. And he was also on the board of directors for the Ryder Cup for 16 years. So he's well and truly involved in golf. And as I mentioned, he seems like a really lovely guy. He's a UNICEF ambassador. And the quote he mentioned about that, that I dug up, we're living in the same world, but we're not living the same life, which is a tough, but really lovely thought that he wants to lift people up, much like a burn lifting a ball. Uh, Sorry, sorry. Now, he's done some <laughs> phenomenal work in Madagascar. I've seen video footage of some of the stuff that he's done over there. And it is great that people like him can obviously give people a, you know, the lift that you kind of mentioned there, not the, not the other kind. <laughs> and, and as you mentioned with that ad where he tried with the putter, he's owned it. He really has. He's got a really good sense about it. So he says that it always comes up whenever there's an anniversary or even when a major is played, particularly when they're playing it at Carnoustie. So he says... It's recurrent. It comes and comes in waves, especially around the open. And frankly, to be honest, I think there was about 250 million spectators on TV. So I guess by the time I've seen them all, we're going to stop talking about it. Every time I meet a new one, of course, he wants to talk about Carnoustie. So it is something that's never going to escape him. And he actually participated with Netflix on the Losers series. So he's been a really good sport about it. He could have just avoided it, not ever talked about it, gone into hiding about it. But he's, yeah, he's owned it. I want to leave this with the best quote I read through the whole thing. Again, from Vanderveld. It's not the course that our struggle is against. The enemy is us. Absolutely true, especially when you think about choking. Choke level? Oh, It's got to be pretty high, doesn't it? Especially given he was said to be in the form of his life. It's not a 10 because he wasn't ranked so high. I'd say a 7 or an 8. Yeah, I've got it as an 8. Yeah. Given, yep. obviously, the legacy and, and a few of the other bits and pieces. But yeah, it's the, the fact that he's so introspective and and able to reflect and be so positive about it and the fact that he still makes that putt to force the playoff yes if he misses the playoff you almost have to make it a choke 10 out of 10 yeah but he did at least he at least did after all those shenanigans get into the playoff hole now it didn't work out well for him but he did get there could have been worse it could have been worse just and now what made Stu say bloody hell 
Well, this is a bloody hell that we have presented before in episode 10, way, way, way back towards the start. Yeah, wow, okay. But it goes to Toronto Blue Jays catcher, Reese McGuire, who was caught last year choking the chicken. Oh, uh, yes, the catcher caught. In a public car park. Ugh. In the middle of the day. Ugh. Out the front of a Dollar Tree store <laughs> in Dunedin, Florida. Oh, God. Right around the block from his own apartment. Oh, my God. I forgot about that detail. Are you serious? Absolutely. Oh, Jesus. So basically, for reasons still unknown, Maguire has felt the urge, and rather than finding somewhere private, he's parked his car, turned on some porn, and went to work. (laughs) Unfortunately for him, a lady who had parked her car happened to see him and phoned the police. What a surprise. Yeah, and he was sprung with his pants down. Kind of ironic when, as a catcher, he loves to see opposing batsmen being caught looking. (laughs) Two balls and one strike, am I right? (laughs) Oh, it writes itself. So he was actually facing up to a year in prison for misdemeanor exposure of sexual organs. Wow. But managed a plea bargain, which saw him plead no contest, pay a fine and court costs. He's actually still on the Blue Jays roster. He played in 78 of the 162 games this season, and he made about $570,000, which, you know, not too bad. Oh, yeah. All all things considered. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Better than being in prison. Well, absolutely. So for trying to knock one out of the park or (laughs) trying to knock one out in the parking lot, as you want to call it, (laughs) but instead being called foul, all I can say to you, Reese McGuire, is bloody hell. Choke level, six out of (laughs) ten. Well, he probably only got six strokes in for his choke. (laughs) Well, yeah, stroke level was probably a little bit higher, hopefully. (laughs) We better move on and get this out of the gutter. Yeah, we better finish because he didn't get to. (laughs) Bloody hell. Bloody hell. So, Stewie, our next choke goes all the way back to 1993 and the tennis world here. And, boy... This thing has everything. It really, it has heartbreak. It has redemption. It has more heartbreak. It's a fascinating story. It was the year that Monica Sellers was stabbed by a crazed German fan who was a Steffi Graf fan. So already every tournament that year was played in this weird kind of historical context. But we go to the 1993 Wimbledon final, Jana Novotna and... Steffi Graf. That previously mentioned Steffi Graf. Yeah, so tennis is one of those sports where it can be so easy to implode. I've seen more tennis comebacks than I can remember, but this is one of those weird occasions where a champion in the tennis world actually lost her ability to serve late in a game on the biggest possible stage that there is. Yes, no kidding there. So heading into the tournament, she had 33 to 1 odds to win the whole thing, Jana Novotna. It was only her second Grand Slam singles final, but she was in bloody good form. So in the quarterfinals of this Wimbledon, she beat Sabatini 6-4, 6-4, having previously lost her six previous matches to her. So she got the monkey off her back in that way. And then in the semis, she beat Martina Navratilova, again, one of the absolute stars of all time in women's tennis, for the first time having lost her previous five encounters with her. So she goes into the final under some pretty good momentum. Yeah. So to that point in the tournament, she's actually only lost one set. Yeah. Which you're talking about such a star-studded lineup. I mean, just the two names that you've rattled off there, Gabriella Sabatini and Martina Navratilova, those two alone. Yep. And even without sellers in the field, women's tennis was pretty strong back in the early 90s. Very, very good. Yeah. So she goes on and she faces Steffi Graf in the final. Now she loses the first set in a tie break, which obviously, you know, they're tough. Sometimes they can be enough to, to kind of put people off. 
And I've got to admit, I didn't. The, apparently, the whole game is on YouTube. We could only find part one. We yeah. couldn't find part two. Yeah. I watched the extended highlights, and that first set is really entertaining. A real mm. arm wrestle, some great shots. There are more highlights in that first set than most full matches would have. Yeah. And Nirvana was so she was great to watch. I forgot how good. And we were pretty young in 1993. We would have been about nine when this happened. So, you know, our memories will be a bit. Faded. A little bit hazy, yeah. But her net play was fantastic and yep. so athletic. Like I remember in an episode we recorded recently, you said Radicanu's athleticism and jumping ability was pretty poor. But mm. Novotna, on the other hand, her jumping at the net was fantastic. Some great angular shots, like she had Steffi all around the court. It, that first set is brilliant. Well, I think it was also her anticipation at the net. She understood angles. She played it so well. She was very, very quick. Look, Graf had a superb backhand and a, and a really, really impressive forehand as well. So there's going to be times when you get past, but she was one of those players, one of the very, very few real genuine serving volleys. Oh, loved like, it. Yeah. Like an, a Navratilova. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, really, really great to see. I find that sort of style more enjoyable to watch. It's a shame it's kind of left the women's game a little bit nowadays. Well, it's left the men's game as yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. I really like serve volley. It's, yeah. yeah, it's fascinating. You tend to find that unless they're really tall, they kind of stay away from yeah, them. It's all, yeah, all, it's a shame. Yeah, all sort of back of the court rallies. Yeah. Now, after losing that first set in the tiebreak, Novotna's gone up about five gears. She oh. has absolutely just raced out of the blocks, took the second set 6-1 in Comfortably. very, very quick time. Oh, you made light work of it. And then you blink, and the third set, she's up 4-1 with the serve. Yep, it's looking very, very good at that point. Now, on serve, she's up 40-30, so she's got a game point to take it to a 5-1 lead, which, yeah, it's not insurmountable, but 5-1, you would like your chances. Oh, yeah, big time, big time. And then out of nowhere, I, I just... She just implodes. Yeah. She, I mean, well, she chokes. I mean, this is what we're talking about. She tenses up. And it's funny. So I listened to a tennis podcast do a special on this. By the way, on that podcast, I heard she is the one and only former women's singles winner to have passed away. Mm. In the open era. Very, very sad. It is very sad. And we'll get to that at the end. But it's also a bit surprising, don't you think? I mean, a little bit when you think about how much time has passed. Yeah. But anyway, so on that podcast, they interview Mary Crilly, who said, you could tell when Yana was getting tight. She had that thing dead to rights. When you watch Yana struggling with her serve, with her shot, everything was flying off the racket. The promised land was right there and she couldn't make it. It was like having to dance at your own funeral. Graf didn't even beat Yana in the end. Graf just stood around while Yana beat herself. Yep. And that's harsh talk. But when you watch the highlights, it's kind of true. Well, but the thing is, it's easy to do. So I'm going to take us back to, God, would have been early 2000s where a good friend of ours had a, what we used to call one of the fun houses to go to. He had a pool table. Oh, you're going to talk about Tournament of Champions. But he, tournament of Champions. <laughs> and, he, and he had a table tennis table. Yes. And what we used to do was we'd play around Robin and playing this guy one of the things that used to frustrate me is that I would be hitting big forehands and he would just stand there and block, Think every, it. Yeah, just block yeah. everything back. Yeah. And eventually he would just wait for me to make a mistake. War of attrition. And I would make the mistakes every single time. It's so funny you bring this up. So this is great fun. We made up trophies and we'd have little competitions. And this occurred to me as well. When I, in the intro, I was talking about, we can relate to chokes. I choked in the tournament of champions so many times. Yep. I had games won in both the pool and the table tennis, and I never took the trophy away. Yeah. Oh, so annoying. And, and, but this is exactly the same thing where Graf basically is just get the ball back into play, let Yana sort of tense up and, and become a little bit stiff in her movement, and she's going to put balls long. She's going to put them into the, the net. No. Oh, and she really does. Like, there's one serve she hits about three or four metres out, like by a mile, like not a serve a professional player would normally make. 
There's a couple of smashes and lobs that she was making impeccably throughout the course of the match earlier, and she just loses the plot. Yep. Oh, it's hard to watch. It is. And so all of a sudden, Graf wins the next five games and wins the set 6-4 and the match and the tournament. Yeah. And everything. And on that up one, I think it's 40-30, on that double fault, I wonder if Hawkeye had been around if it would have been a double fault, actually. Okay. Yeah, it was a little bit closer than... Yeah, but, but some of the other shots are just nuts. They're nuts. So obviously this is an absolutely horrendous choke from that position. I mean, anytime you're talking about being up, in this case, a double break yes. in the third set. After winning the second so comfortably, having all the momentum. And obviously having a game point on your own serve. Like yep. you, you just should never, as a professional tennis player, lose that. Yeah. But it happened. It did. And she did. And so we get into the legacy side of things and... This is where it kind of gets a little bit worse before it gets better. Yes, yes. So So there's this famous footage in the trophy presentation. And this is the memory that so many people will have of the 1993 Wimbledon tournament in general. Indelibly linked into Wimbledon's history. Is her being presented this runner-up shield by the Duchess of Kent and Novotna having words with her and you can just see the tears on her face and all of a sudden she just starts crying into the Duchess's shoulder. Oh, it's such a human moment. But you know, apparently what set her off is what's been reported is that the Duchess said to her, you're too good to not win one. You'll definitely win one one day. You will win one one day. And that's what set the tears off. Her exact words were, I know you will win it one day. Don't you worry. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And yeah, the emotion of that whole experience, it just washed over her and... Yeah, it was always... How could it not? I mean, yeah. Of course, yeah. yeah. You you don't know if you're ever going to get back to that stage. As you said, she's a 33 to 1 chance of making the final and winning it. Yep. So it's not like she's the sort of person who you're expecting. She wasn't a favourite. No, even though she wasn't exactly a low seed. I mean, we talk about all of the low seeds. I mean, even now, Indian Wells is being played out and the finals between two players in the 20s. Yeah, right. So it's happening a lot in the women's game, but that's, yeah, it's just not the case back then. So she did lose another one, didn't she? Yeah. Unfortunately. So 1997, she gets back to the final and she loses to Martina Hingis, who was 16. Yes. 16. And she was a phenom in her own right. By the way, the history of tennis, Hingis gets a bit forgotten nowadays, doesn't she? She does. People 10 to 15 years younger than us, so we're knocking on the door of 40. They wouldn't even know much about Hingis. No. And when we were kids, when we were growing up, it was all about Hingis. It was crazy, wasn't yeah. it? They thought she was going to be the greatest of all time. Then a woman named Serena turns up and uh, kind of wipes her under the rug a little bit. Yeah, did did pretty well. Yeah. But the thing with the match against Hingis was that she actually led that match by a set and she was also a point away from a 3-0 lead in the final set of that one. And unfortunately with that one, it wasn't so much a choke. She actually then was hampered more so by an abdominal injury. Right. So it wasn't just a case of her choking the same way that she did against Graf. Right, right. I've got an interesting quote again here from the tennis podcast, this time Chris Glary. What an intelligent, sensitive person she was. I think that was the challenge for her, was to calm the mind and quiet all the thoughts that went on in there and let the game speak. When you got her away from the tournament, she was incredibly in touch with her emotions and sense of vulnerability on the court. Choking is such a dirty word, but you know what? It's okay. I can see how it would apply in this case. And it's hard to not think of it, okay, as you say, maybe not in the second iteration, but definitely the Steffi Graf one. And clearly she's got a bit of a friendship with the Duchess because they've kept in touch. Yeah, so after losing that one, she again greets her. It's a little bit better this time because she's not covered in tears, but the Duchess says to her, I'm sure it'll be third time lucky. Yeah. And you don't know whether she's just said that out of desperation of I need to say something to try and cheer her up here. No, from what I've heard, she genuinely did believe in Yana. She was a very good player. 
tell you who didn't believe in her though was the press oh yes because they were well they love these you know but it's like chum in the water for sharks isn't it well there were members of the media dubbing her no no novotna oh the lady from Czechoslovakia. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. Which it does kind of write yeah, itself. Yeah, a bit, yeah, a bit, yeah, yeah, right? yeah, yeah. But uh, oh, it's <laughs> they love a crap pun in the press. Oh, we brilliant. love a crap pun too. Yeah, so Look at exactly. our titles. Exactly. <laughs> I love coming up with titles. Exactly. Yeah, but finally, luckily, thankfully, because this this would be heartbreaking given she's passed away. There is a redemptive end to this story. There is. And it happened just the year after that. So she actually managed to make it back to the final in 1998. She's defeated French woman Natalie Tozio. She has exacted revenge on Hingis as well. Funnily enough, also a very good serve volleyer. Tozio? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 I, see, I didn't get to see as much of that as I would have liked, but I, yeah, I wasn't aware. I guess being I saw a, in the highlights, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Being, being a French. The French do actually quite like to serve and volley, I guess, growing up on the, on the on clay. On the clay, yeah, yeah. yeah. But as I mentioned, she got a revenge on Hingish, took her out in the semifinals in straight sets. Yep. And even the final wasn't without a few nervy moments, it has to be said. Mm. She was broken in her opening service game of the match before finally winning the first set 6-4. And then she led 2-0 early in the second set before Toziao actually clawed it back to 5-all and eventually a tiebreaker. Mm. Thankfully, Novotna dominated that one, one. I think it was like 7-2. But geez, you know that that moment where you're thinking, "Oh God, not again!" Yeah, yeah, not yep. again. And that's a name that people might not remember. But she beat Davenport to make the final, for example, Tozia. So you yes. know, she, again, maybe a player lost in the annals of history a little bit. But she was no slouch. And that was funnily enough one of the things that I read about was that a lot of people were worried that she was going to run into Davenport, who was in a pretty rich vein of form herself. Yeah, well, probably near her peak at that point in yeah. the late '90s. Yeah. So kind of did <laughs> did a pretty decent favor to Novotna by managing yeah. to lose that one and i tell you what watching novotna fall to her knees and burst into tears that is something that absolutely hits me every oh, time it's, it's hard not to tug at the heartstrings this story it every really time. is yeah and if we look at the overall legacy of novotna i mean she's done pretty well she actually won three of the four grand slams in doubles yep it was actually only the french open that eluded her huh, funny she also retired with a hundred titles to her name Wow. 24 in singles, 76 in the doubles. Yep. She also won a bronze and two silver Olympic medals. And she also won the 1988 Fed Cup with Czechoslovakia. So she did have an incredible Still career. Still had a great career. Yeah, absolutely. But you would just think, had she not managed to win that singles title, oh, it would have been... Well, all these career achievements would be overshadowed. And as I mentioned at the top, they all already nearly are a little bit. But yep. thankfully, she did win that championship at Wimbledon. Now, sadly, as you alluded to, she did pass away in 2017 after a battle with cancer. I think she was age 49. Yeah, she was very young and she was very private about it too. And there's been this, like lately, obviously we had Sean Locke, who's not a sportsman, but a lot of people, Norm MacDonald, all these people that had these battles with cancer and didn't tell people. Like apparently there were people super, super close to her that she didn't even tell. Yep. Yeah. But I'll tell you what, the one thing that cancer couldn't take away from her was that she will always be a Grand Slam champion. That's right. Her achievements. Definitely. So what do we give this? Yeah, this is a difficult one now, isn't it? It is. I've actually given this a fairly low rating. I actually think it's only a three. I think in isolation, it would be higher than that, given how much she was up and how much she was dominating and how well she was playing. Some of those net shots are just... I encourage... There's a 15-minute highlight package. I would encourage people to watch it. It's really great to watch. I think the reason it is a bit lower, three or four, is because of her opponent. And I think the opponent thinks really important because obviously Steffi Graf won the Golden Slam. Like she is one of the greatest tennis players of all time. Not only did she win all four Grand Slams in a calendar year, she also won the gold medal. And again, one of those players that was going to pounce on any error. 
So it was never out of the game in that sense. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think it's on the lower scale of chokes. Yeah, I think coupling that with the fact that she had that redemption story. Yep. Okay, five years later, yes. But the fact that she did manage that, I think, is such a great thing. And, yeah, I think you're right. The choke on its own, yeah. probably a six or a seven-ish, maybe maybe a seven. But I think in totality, you're probably talking a three or a four. I'd, I'd give it a three personally, but... And this Steffi Graf thing, right? Like Absolutely. Her, her opponent. She wasn't playing some also ran. She was playing an absolute superstar of the game one at of, the height of her powers. One of the top five women players of all Ever. time. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Rest in peace, Yana. Amen. All right, sure, you know what that music means. Another Sport Choke episode in the can. Another good one too, I hope. Yeah, thoroughly enjoyed that one. Yeah. On our next Choke special, run the fucking football. <laughs> As the Atlanta Falcons forget, there are two halves to a football game. Oh, they sure did. And we take time out to look back at the 1993 NCAA Basketball Championship game where Chris Webber and the Fab Five fall short again. Yeah, they sure do too. Until next time, now, we don't know when that episode will air because we'll be possibly back onto our weekly schedule. Who knows, but we'll be recording these. We're having a lot of fun. Until next time, I'm Nate. And I'm Stu. We are the Sport Blokes.